Welcome to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. The American Red Cross is facing an emergency blood shortage. The number of people donating has dropped to a 20-year low. They're desperate for donors, even offering a chance to win Super Bowl tickets if you give blood this January. But what about those who have been traditionally barred from blood donation? Gay and bisexual men. Last year, the Food and Drug Administration ended blood donor restrictions for them, and the American Red Cross is changing its policies. Chris Sealback, the former president of the Cincinnati Council and the first openly LGBTQ person elected in Cincinnati, recently donated blood for the first time in decades. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So this was a big change for both the FDA and the Red Cross because the ban on blood donation has been around in some form since 1985, right? Yeah, I mean, this all started with the whole AIDS, HIV AIDS epidemic and, you know, hysteria and also wanting to make sure that blood donation was safe. Uh, so it started with the right intent that we want to ensure that our that blood donation is safe and that people who are receiving blood um, aren't receiving blood that has uh, diseases in it. Um, but it, within the same year, we started testing blood donations, or the FDA, the federal government started testing don blood donations for HIV and, and AIDS, and the policy really was never updated after that. Yeah, the reason for the ban, at least according to the FDA, was that HIV testing, while it's accurate, it doesn't detect the virus for about 10 to 33 days after infection. So in that first month, you could test negative, even though you might already be positive. That's like why first responders who are exposed usually test twice. Yeah, and I mean, there, there were legitimate concerns that started this conversation. But, you know, we know that uh, it's more about behavior and not necessarily just your sexual orientation. You know, I've been with my husband for 20 years uh, and almost 20 years. Uh, I'm far less likely to have a disease than someone who is straight, but maybe in college and having different sexual partners every week. So this is more about the risk are more about behavior and not specific just to all gay men or bisexual men. Right. So married couples like yourself have argued for years that they are low risk when they're in these monogamous relationships and you wanted to be treated as such. So a couple of years ago, the FDA said, OK, if you are abstinent in all ways for a year, then you can donate. Then during the pandemic, they shifted it down to abstinent for three months. You can donate. And now, finally, it is just a blanket change that deals with your recent sexual behaviors. So... How did you feel when the FDA finally made this change? You know, I've I've been advocating this for years um, since I was a teenager. When I last donated blood, I like to be part of the solution. And blood donation is incredibly important. Um, I know people who've had to receive blood. And since I donated a couple of weeks ago, I've had people that are currently in need of blood reach out thanking me. And so I recognize the importance of of giving back, of giving, you know, something that I have that could be of value to someone else. Uh, and so it's been incredibly frustrating the last 40 years where gay men like myself have just been barred from helping uh, based on bad science that, 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 you know, just because I'm gay, not specific to uh, how many partners I have or the risky behavior I might engage in, but just because I'm gay, I was not able to be part of the solution. And so 
when this changed last year, and then in Cincinnati, our blood donation uh, provider, Hawksworth, updated their policy just about a month ago, you know, I jumped at the uh, opportunity to, to help out. As you mentioned, blood supply is in high demand right now. And most of the blood donations in greater Cincinnati go to children's hospital. So it's helping kids with cancer or, you know, people that, you know, are in dire need of blood. And, and so now we can expand that circle of people who can be part of the solution. And I'm very, I'm proud and, and also feel like I'm helping, um, you know, the greater good. So it, it was a great feeling um, donating a couple weeks ago. And that is something to keep in mind. So the FDA changed its rules, I think, in late May. The Red Cross changed in August. But individual rollout in communities has been sort of, it's been taking some time. Like you said, uh, your local blood donation center took until about December. So people probably should check what the status is because it may they may not have made the changeover yet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, things that seems like they should take overnight uh, take longer than anyone expects. So, <laughs> you know, they were they they were thoughtful. I mean, government and all FDA and all of that uh, things takes usually longer than than we think they should. But they were thoughtful and made sure that they were doing it the right way. Because I will say that I've learned just in the last couple of weeks that while the policy has changed for blood donation, it hasn't changed for tissue and organ donation. Uh, and so there still is work to be done, uh, and gay and bisexual men are still limited in being part of the overall solution of donating um, things that could help others. So, uh, but uh, blood donation is now uh, not specific. There's no blanket ban on men who have sex with men, MSM, uh, and now gay and bisexual men can be part of the solution, and there is an absolute need for that expansion of the circle of people who give blood. So. It's a great, um, it's, and, and this has been, HIV and STDs have been tested for decades. So um, there's no concern of, that people should have about receiving blood from gay and bisexual men uh, on top of the science doesn't actually say that we're a greater risk. Yeah, the new rules, I want to go over what they are for current blood donation, because even if you aren't gay, the rules have changed. So yes. the new rules are focused on your recent sexual behaviors rather than your sexual orientation. So there is a blanket ban on donating if you have recently slept with someone who is HIV positive, even if you use protection. So that remains in place. Um, but the new screening policy forbids donations from anyone, gay, straight, anywhere in between, from donating if you've had multiple partners in the last couple of months and engaged in anal sex. So you could be a heterosexual person who's not in a monogamous relationship and find yourself newly ineligible to donate. Yeah, and these questions are, you know, more fair because they're for everyone and they make sense. I mean, if someone is is engaging in with multiple sexual partners in the most in in the last couple months, then they are at greater risk of contracting an STD. And while that the FDA and these blood donations still test, it probably does make sense to exclude these people from blood donation. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, for someone like me, who's been in a monogamous relationship for decades, uh, it didn't make sense to just exclude me because I'm gay. Uh, and so that has changed, but questions specific to risky behavior um, are still asked, but they're asked to everyone and not uh, just excluding gay and bisexual men. 
And there is an exception, and this is a big exception because the FDA policy still forbids people from donating if they're taking Truvada or Descovy, these like HIV prevention medications. If you've taken that in the last three months, which a lot of gay men choose to take because it lowers your risk of infection from HIV, uh, the FDA is still banning you from donation. Yeah, I think that that's an ongoing discussion. Obviously, someone who's on these medications is trying, you know, has gone the extra step to be careful and not contract an STD, uh, but it also means that they probably are having unprotected sex. And so that does likely set them up at a higher risk. So, but I think that, you know, this, we haven't concluded this conversation and it's going to continue to ensure that we're, we're fair and that we have as large of a blood supply as possible, but also takes into account risky behavior. Uh, and that is an ongoing discussion that I know will include drugs like Truvada and PrEP. Do you think that this reversal in policy is going to make a difference? Because blood donation has been dropping for a while. I hope so. I mean, the reason that, you know, I'm talking with you today and, and talk to the Cincinnati Enquirer is, you know, not because this is exactly what I want to do, but because <laughs> I want more people, I want more gay and, and bisexual men to donate blood. Um, you know, it, I don't think that they know that gay and bisexual men now know that it is completely legal uh, for you to go to your blood bank and give blood and that we are, there is a critically low shortage of blood supply in this country and that there are real people uh, our loved ones who need blood and we can be part as gay and bisexual men can now be part of the solution. So the reason I'm talking with you, the reason that I talked with the Cincinnati Enquirer is because I want this to spur more gay and bisexual men making that appointment. Uh, it was easy. I was in and out in less than a half an hour. Uh, it, there was no pain. Uh, I, I don't love needles, but I, I hardly felt even a poke. And I uh, I think they, they said it once the needle was in, it took six minutes and I gave a pint of blood. And and as I mentioned, they don't know, they can't tell me for sure. But with a lot of certainty, it went to Children's Hospital with kids with cancer. So uh, it really and it's kids a way with to... cancer. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say kids with cancer yeah. can take an unbelievable amount of blood during the course of their treatment. Exactly. Um, and it is just a selfless way to give back and know that you've really done something to make a difference in your community. Uh, and so, yes, I hope that this conversation, someone listening is going to go and find their blood bank and make an appointment because uh, that's what we need more of. And if, like I said at the beginning, if you are into football, Red Cross is still <laughs> offering to put you in that entry to win some Super Bowl tickets if you donate before the end of January. Hey, I mean, it's in Vegas this year, the Super Bowl, and uh, if you can sign me up for that, I'd love to. I gave blood two weeks ago, but hey, I, I, I'm no longer elected, so I can win prizes. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that this FDA reversal is reflected of broader shifts in perceptions related to HIV and to gay and bisexual men generally? I hope so. I mean, there still is a stigma associated with being HIV positive or having STDs. Uh, and it is a, a very livable disease at this point, which is an amazing thing to say as a gay man who uh, the generation before me, a large percentage of them were wiped out from HIV AIDS. Uh, they're dead. And so 
to be to live in 2024 to say that someone who contracts HIV and AIDS can live a pretty normal life is just amazing. And I think people who went before me would be so proud of us. So I hope that this is a part of a larger uh, movement that we're destigmatizing uh, HIV and AIDS, that it is something that if you contract that you can live healthy. Now you can't donate blood and that makes sense, but uh, it is something that you can live for a long time with. Uh, but most gay and bisexual men are not HIV positive. Uh, and uh, there are people like me who um, want to be part of the, the solution and, and that don't, do not have HIV and AIDS. And um, so I, I think that that's also the stigma that maybe some people have that all gay and bisexual men must be HIV positive and, and that's not the case. And so I hope this conversation also uh, helps uh, defy those continued myths that, that some people may have. Do you think there's still some resentment over the old rules? Like people in, I don't know if you've had conversations with folks that maybe they're still, they just don't feel like donating just because the FDA finally decided to make this change. I will say that it took almost 40 years and that's been incredibly frustrating. Uh, and the fact that it still remains for uh, plasma and tissue and organ donations. Uh, I do think that there probably are some people that you know, uh, that if you don't want my blood, I, you know, I'm not going to give you my blood now. So I, I'm sure that that exists, but I hope that those people, you know, see the forest through the trees and know that this is a, this is really about helping others uh, who desperately need blood. And so let's take, you know, the fact that government always takes longer than it should out of the equation. We're now to the point where gay and bisexual men can donate legally uh, let's be part of the solution because this is about helping our neighbors and our loved ones and not about the politics or the, you know, the, how government is always slow. Um, and I, I hope and I, I do think the majority of people will see that larger good and get over any frustration they've had with the process, um, because we could go on forever about how government process is always frustrating. And it is. Um, but and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have that conversation, but it shouldn't prevent us um, from being part of the solution that we can now be part of. That was Chris Sealback, the former president of the Cincinnati Council and apparently a current advocate for blood donation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be on. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're talking about the plastics that might be in your food. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. Plastic is everywhere. But how much of it are we eating? Some scientists estimate we ingest about five grams of microplastics a week. That's about the weight of a credit card. But that doesn't include plastic chemicals, plasticizers, 
Consumer Reports recently analyzed 85 popular food items, from fast food to supermarket staples, and found plastic chemicals in almost all of them. James Rogers is the Director of Product Safety for Consumer Reports, and he joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to All Sides, Jim. Yeah, thank you for having me today. I want to first distinguish between plastic chemicals and microplastics. Both are consumed in the food we eat, but they're different. Yes, they are different because the micro or nanoplastics you may be reading about in the news are the actual pieces of plastic that can break off when you use plastic containers, plastic bottles, etc. What we tested for are called plasticizers, which are the chemicals that are used to actually manufacture the plastic. And so we're not talking about a physical problem. We're talking about a chemical problem. Now, microplastics can release plasticizers, but that's that's a, a different story. It's a different product. So plasticizers mm-hmm. are chemicals that make plastics more flexible and durable, correct? Correct. So how do they get into the food or what's the theory behind how they get there? So initially it was thought that these plasticizers end up in the food based on what we wrap or contain our food in. So plastic containers, plastic wraps. Further research has shown that you can have these chemicals in the soils or in the waters where animals or our plants are consuming Um, And they will take up these chemicals into their bodies and it ends up into the food that we eat. Also processing and manufacture of food. There are a number of plastic food contact surfaces in the manufacturing process, such as hoses and belts and uh, the gloves that the uh, workers wear and the plasticizers can transfer from that into the food as they're making the food. So there are a number of different ways that these chemicals are getting into our food. And these are chemicals like BPA and phthalates, um, Mm -hmm. right? And the concern is that uh, they can A, be cumulative. So the more you Mm -hmm. eat, the more they build. And B, that they can sort of mess with some of your hormones. They can mess with your body. There's some theories it may contribute to certain cancer risks. Is that kind of the gist of the worry? Yes. So these chemicals are a group of chemicals in the family of endocrine disruptors. And what endocrine disruptors can do is to either make your body not make certain hormones, such as estrogen, or make too little of the hormones. And that while many of these plasticizers come in and out of your body quickly, Some of them may linger, but also if you're constantly being exposed to them by many, many foods that you eat, then basically your body does not get a rest from exposure to these chemicals. Um, That's the concern. It's a long-term, not an acute problem, but a long-term chronic problem that your body is facing these assaults of all these chemicals in many different foods. So now that we've gone through all of the background, I want to move into a section called All Sides Ruins Your Lunch. So... <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's not too bad. I like that one. So you tested for these chemicals, these endocrine disruptors, in 85 mm-hmm. different foods, mm-hmm. and you got some pretty surprising results. So I want to go through a couple of them with you. Um, mm-hmm. Wendy's Chicken Nuggets, for example, had almost 34,000 phthalates per serving. They sort of led the list. Yes. 
how do I interpret that? Like, is 34,000 bad? Like, how do I know what, how do I know how to read that number? I mean, it looks like a lot, but. Well, in our article, we say that we don't believe that any phthalates are safe. And so if you uh, remember from the article, we did a range, we did from low to high of what we found. And so that high number is, in my opinion, terrible. That is a very high amount of these phthalates that you're being exposed to. And so I would say high, I would say concern and caution about that particular product because of the level of the, that plasticizer. But then McDonald's chicken nuggets came in at about 8,000 phthalates per mm-hmm. serving. So wild yes. discrepancy. Yes, exactly. And so as you probably can guess, Wendy's and McDonald's probably sourced their chicken from different sources. And those chickens could have been raised on different feed. They could have been out in an environment that, you know, maybe the Wendy's ones are exposed to a lot of phthalates in the environment. The McDonald's ones aren't. And so what you're seeing is that within one food type, you're seeing a wide range of concentration of these chemicals, which is kind of sort of expected because our uh, food manufacturing process and sourcing of ingredients is very diverse in the United States. Yeah, one that got me was uh, Fairlife Core Core Power High Protein Chocolate Shakes. So mm-hmm. I like those, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if you like freeze them and blend them into like this kind of quasi protein ice cream. Yes. But you, you found a bunch. I was like, ah, oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my daughter tells me, you're just trying to get us not to eat anything, aren't you? And I'm like, not really. I'm just trying to help you eat safer, <laughs> right? So, and I, I think that's the main point of the data that we're presenting. Um, we don't think we can t- reduce your risk to zero, right? But with the products that we tested and the numbers we found, we think what we can do is to get you to be a smarter shopper, an informed shopper. And so you reduce your risk. You're not going to eliminate it because if 84 out of 85 products are positive for phthalates, it's going to be very difficult to avoid them. But maybe you'll choose to shop for products that have less. And that's our goal. We're trying to push you toward the the items that have less phthalates. While on the other side, we're advocating that phthalates shouldn't be there in the first place with our federal regulatory agencies. Yeah, the one food that didn't have any phthalates in it was polar raspberry lime seltzer. And as a seltzer lover, I was like, oh, good, I can drink the seltzer. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, maybe we'll send them off the charts and sales and everybody (laughs) will start drinking their seltzer instead of uh, everybody else's seltzer. How about that? Yeah. And even if you buy organic products, because you might assume Mm -hmm. that organic means safer, you found some pretty high levels in Annie's organic cheesy ravioli. Yeah, and that's a point that we've made in a number of our articles, that organic refers to how a particular product or food is being raised, the type of fertilizers, the type of pesticides. It has nothing to do with testing for these chemicals. Uh, Previously, we've reported on heavy metals in food. has nothing to do with heavy metals. You can find these food contaminants inorganic and non-organic. And so we're hoping that consumers will learn to be a bit more discerning about what organic really means. Yeah, you also tested stuff that comes in cans. So like Mm -hmm. Del Monte peaches, uh, some chicken of the sea salmon, but it doesn't seem like using a tin can provided much in the way, or an aluminum can, I think now, provided much in the way of protection. 
Yeah, in our our study, we we noted that it really doesn't depend on what the packaging is. So cans or bottles or plastic bottles, I mean, we would want you to shy away from plastic if you can, but the packaging type really didn't make a difference in our findings, which was a little bit surprising. Yeah, you would think that it would because you would think something in like paper boxing would have less than something in plastic boxing. Exactly. But our data did not reflect that. And so we can't draw that conclusion from it. Do you think that might just be more reflective of the manufacturing process for these products? It's possible. Um, It is possible that maybe some of these manufacturers, manufacturers are aware of these issues with possible contamination of their packaging. And maybe they're making an effort to either pretest what they're uh, buying for packaging or the raw materials that they're making their packaging from and really rejecting those that have high phthalates or high bisphenols in those. And so we're, we're going to give the, the nod to maybe they just want to do better and they are doing better. You also found a bunch of them in a Chipotle chicken burrito. Also a mm. sad news for me. Yes, we did. Um, one of our advice is to really be aware of fast food because our findings have demonstrated that fast food can have a lot of these chemicals. And so one piece of advice we offer to consumers is that reduce or eliminate fast food from your diet, eat more fresh fruits and vegetables, more freshly prepared food, less overly um, uh, processed foods to try to reduce your exposures. So stay away from like the microwavable meals? I would say that, yes. And it's especially do not microwave your food in plastic containers. Oh, a lot of them come in those plastic containers. I know. Um, We're suggesting that if they are in a plastic container or you have your leftovers, that you reheat them in glass. Um, I pretty much removed all the plastic containers from my cabinet and only use glass now in the microwave. Out of all the products you tested, so I said that the Fairlife Core Power Shakes like really made me sad or surprised me, but uh, was there any product that you tested that you were like, oh, darn? Well, you pointed it out, the Chipotle Chicken Burrito, which when I need a Chipotle fix, that's 10 where I lean, and that kind of made me sad. And so I guess I'm going to have to try to maybe recreate my Chipotle chicken burrito at home somehow. I don't know how. I'm not the best cook, but I'm going to have to try because that that did disappoint me. Was there anything that really surprised you, like a product where you really wouldn't have thought there would have been phthalates in it? Um, not really, because before we do this research we uh, or this testing, we do a lot of research. And I did not think it was going to be this bad, 84 out of 85, but I kind of expected that we would find something and it would be pretty extensive. Now, the good news is on the bisphenol side, only 79% of the products we detected bisphenols, which is another uh, plasticizer. And the levels were lower than when we tested in 2009. So that was positive news. But yeah, I think we kind of expected some bad news in this this testing. Only 79%. (laughs) 79 percent in an election would be a total blowout it's just better than 99 percent right it is better than 99 percent um yeah so what do i do as a consumer obviously you tested 85 different products Mm -hmm. um how do i protect myself if you know i'm listening to this and i really have ruined somebody's lunch plans well, we love informed consumers that take our information and other testers' information, because there are other groups that have looked into this, combine it and help them shop smarter and healthier. 
So what we would suggest is you take our information on products and other information on products and let that help you make your grocery list. The second thing is, is that we want to limit your exposure to these chemicals. So in the articles, we talk about, again, avoiding plastic food containers. Don't use them in the microwave. Um, limit your fast foods. Um, when you're cooking in the kitchen, look for any type of plastic that is uh, on your food contact surfaces and eliminate that. So replace with wood or metal, stainless steel or silicon for your uh, kitchen tools so you can reduce your exposure there. If you work out, don't use a plastic bottle, use a stainless steel or a glass one. So we're, we're really trying to reduce your exposure to these chemicals in as many areas as we can, because like I said, can't reduce your risk to zero, but we're going to try to reduce your risk as much as possible. Do you see any hope for regulation, sort of like maybe a day where companies will be legally required to test for these kinds of phthalates and other chemicals in our food before it goes out the door? Well, it's interesting because this story has had uh, long legs. Um, this is one of a number, maybe a dozen interviews I've had about the story. And there seems to be some type of energy to try to, to, to push, nudge, or force our regulatory agencies to do something. So we will we actually have a petition that consumers can join saying to the FDA, we don't think phthalate should be in our food. We don't think phthalate should be used in the manufacture of food. So we want you to regulate these manufacturers and make sure that we're not exposed to phthalates just by them making food for us. We're also asking the manufacturers to examine their entire process from when raw ingredients come into the door to the final product goes out. Look for plastic containing food contact surfaces, eliminate them, replace them, and then do some testing inside your, your, your factory to see where are you contaminating our food with these phthalates and where can you help eliminate them in the entire manufacturing process. So how do where do I go to like if I want to sign some the petition for that? So go to uh, cr.org, which is our website, and this story and all of our food safety stories are in front of the paywall, so they're free. Oh, cool! And toward the end of every uh, story, there is usually a link um, saying sign the petition. Um, we also advocate for you write your Congress people. Write the manufacturers themselves. Tell them you're going to vote with your dollars if they don't do something about this. And look for any opportunity that you can help as a consumer nudge these manufacturers towards safer food. I just, I don't even know what I'm going to eat for lunch anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a difficult choice. And especially because people are so busy. Sometimes those mm -hmm. like microwavable meals are so convenient. It's such a, you know, especially fast food can be so convenient. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so hard, both economically and time-wise, to make some of these choices, you know? Well, actually, making your food at home is actually cheaper than, than fast That's food. That's true. Um, my daughter and I, we talk about how we will spend a Saturday or a Sunday and try to cook while watching the football game or watching, you know, I don't know, Love Island or something <laughs> and preparing a lot of uh, meals and storing them in the freezer. So all you have to do is defrost it and you're ready. And so we try to pre-plan ahead. What can we do so we can reduce or minimize uh, our consumption of fast food. I mean, I have not eaten, for instance, at McDonald's for years 
again, because of some of this data and the science that I know is out there about what this does to my health. And I can substitute that with pre-plant uh, meal pre-planning and, and having stuff in the, in the freezer to be able to defrost and eat. And now you're going to back away from Chipotle. <laughs> yeah, sad <laughs> thing, but yeah. got to do it. That was James Rogers, the director and acting head of product safety for Consumer Reports. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thank you for having me, Anna. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're talking about the controversy over Panera's charged lemonade. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Welcome back to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. Panera Bread's Charged Lemonade has been making headlines, and not for the reason the company wants. Plaintiffs in multiple lawsuits argue that deceptive marketing led them to assume the highly caffeinated drinks didn't contain that many stimulants. And that led to overconsumption that caused permanent damage to their hearts or even death. Rebecca Tushnet is the Frank Stanton Professor of First Amendment Law at Harvard Law School, and she joins us now on All Sides. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So there are some really high caffeine levels in these charged lemonades. Like if you look at the nutrition label on them, they can contain as much as like six, eight shots of espresso. So a lot of caffeine all in one drink. But in these cases... Uh, The plaintiffs seem to be implying that it wasn't clear to them that that much caffeine was in them. Yeah, um, it reminds me actually of the dispute over Four Loco um, some Mm. years back, which had a lot more alcohol than the beers that it resembled. Um, And although some people were drinking them precisely because of that, there was also significant concern that people were drinking much more alcohol than they thought they were. uh, Because when you think you've knocked back one beer, if you've knocked back three, uh, that's going to make a difference to you and could make you physically vulnerable, could make you hurt someone else. Right. So, um, it's it, it's a similar problem, and there were similar moves by, in in that case by state attorneys general uh, to to cut back on it. Yeah. So the Mayo Clinic, just so anybody who's curious, says that about 400 milligrams of caffeine a day is considered safe for most adults, but you can have sensitivity to caffeine, you can have heart conditions. Like, doesn't mean that's true for you. But one of the charged lemonades, like the large 30 ounce version, had 390 milligrams. So pretty much all you should have all day. And some people in these lawsuits said they didn't know that. And they had like three or four in a day, which to me, I'm just like, that sounds like a heart palpitation waiting to happen. Uh, Absolutely. And part of the question about deceptiveness is whether uh, it's reasonable to make assumptions about the world. So uh, an easy example is, you know, if you go into a regular store um, and you buy a product off the shelf, you expect it's new and not used. Um, So they don't have to say new uh, for you to have that expectation. And it probably would be deceptive to not tell you it's used. But 
uh, the question in these cases is, is that as settled for the amount of caffeine or is it up to you to figure that out? So like you go in and you order a cup of coffee. The assumption is that there's caffeine in it. And most people have a sense of like how much a cup of coffee impacts them, right? Right. I think that's the the idea. And, it, you know, when you're confronted with a new product, so one view is, uh, you know, it's on you, the consumer, to figure out, uh, OK, this is a new product. Uh, it's clearly not coffee. So what do I do about that? Yeah. And so most people probably would hear the word lemonade and not think that lemonade has caffeine in it, or at least the traditional understanding. Now, charged could mean caffeinated lemonade, but some people are arguing that they thought it meant it was charged with different fruit flavors. And there was all this advertising about it being healthy and clean and words that maybe didn't imply very, very caffeinated. Yeah, and I think that's the basic uh, claim of deception, which is, you know, you uh, led me to believe something that wasn't true. Um, and we've always uh, said, you know, it doesn't have to be a straight up lie uh, in to violate consumer protection statutes as long as it is likely to deceive people. And that's just a question of what the world, the rest of the world is like, what 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 do people expect? Um, you know, what are people surprised by? Um, and if you if you sort of manipulate those assumptions, um, then you can be uh, liable, just like if you gave, said, you know, uh, this is a discounted price and it wasn't. Yeah, I saw a lot of those actually around Black Friday. There was a lot of like social media videos circling, sort of calling out companies that they thought weren't offering real Black Friday discounts. But absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess maybe when it may eventually, if this case moves forward or if any of these cases move forward, it may come down to what a jury thinks charged lemonade means when they hear the name. Yeah, most of the time, um, uh, these cases don't make it to a jury for various reasons. Um, uh, the, uh, so the uh, the court is likely to uh, do a first pass and say, okay, do I think it's reasonable for consumers to be fooled by this? If the court thinks uh, it's not reasonable, then they might kick it out uh, right at the beginning. Um, but it is very hard to predict. Yeah, and one move Panera has taken is to remove it from its self-serve fountain. So you can still order the drink, but you can't keep going back for all those free refills, which is how some of these cases argue people got into trouble. Is that, like, the right move here? So, you know, uh, I I don't want to pretend to be giving Panera any advice, but what I would say is is that, uh, you know, part of this is not a traditional false advertising case. It's more like this is just a badly designed product. And, you know, uh, one of the consequences is I was deceived by it. But, you know, maybe it shouldn't be, you know, dispensed in those quantities. And so for the bet for the design part, uh, certainly taking it away from self-serve is going to is going to improve the the uh, the quality of the design. Um, but then the deception part, um, you know, it's still it's still a question. There are lots of things that can be deceptive, you know, even though uh, you don't serve yourself. Yeah. Going back to that for loco example, it was, you know, in a can you had to be 21 to buy it, but it wasn't completely clear how much alcohol was in a single can. Um you know, I sort of wonder, actually, with the decision to remove it from the self-serve fountains, if that's more of a court of public opinion issue, right? We're seeing lots of coverage of these issues. It's making national media. We're talking about it right now on all sides. So like, they're like, look, OK, we get it. We're actually taking steps to correct it. And that's kind of a 
PR, like, let's fix this campaign. Right. And, you know, for very good reasons, the legal system often doesn't uh, uh, give any weight to those things because it doesn't want to discourage people from doing it. Right. So it, 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 we generally don't let the... It, uh, let them uh, let the plaintiffs use that kind of thing as evidence that, uh, you know, it, that it was too dangerous, because if if we did that, then people would hesitate to fix things right? and out of fear it would be used against them. So, you know, I think it's socially beneficial to for the for them to take steps, um, you know, it, it, even if the the initial rollout was not good. I want to talk a little more broadly about the term greenwashing because it's been used increasingly in recent years. And some of that was being alluded to in this case, that they used things like natural and clean and words that um, might sell this as more of a health drink and less of an energy drink. Yeah. Uh, so that's a huge problem because we don't have very many definitions of these things. And uh, it does seem like consumers tend to kind of overread them. Um, and assume that there's a definition and assume that someone is looking out, you know, for their for their interests and and, you know, preventing deception. And so the temptation is to rely on that uh, kind of representation, even though it turns out not to really have much meaning. Uh, and uh, that's that's obviously a problem. And it's really widespread across lots of different products, uh, not just food and cosmetics, but uh, pretty much anything. Uh, you can find. Yeah, I always find it interesting in like the last couple of years that gluten free has become more popular, right? Like for like it's become a diet. People are into keto and all these other like anti-carb kind of diets. And I see the phrase gluten free on all kinds of things where I'm like, yeah, of course, the orange juice is gluten free. Why are you putting that on the box? But I guess in some sense, it, it, it's working for them, right? Like there was somebody in marketing that made the decision that putting in on the orange juice was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that is not itself, you know. Uh, it's not deceptive. It's necessarily. true. Right. It's true. Well, so this is the thing that about deception. Sometimes it can come uh, from uh, things that are true, but nonetheless misleading. So uh, a, a good example is, you know, if you saw a product that says, uh, you know, no product is better at reversing baldness oh. uh, and, you know, nothing does reverse baldness. Right. It's true. No product is better, but that doesn't mean it works. Oh. Uh, and. Uh, people are very vulnerable to this because we don't generally read ads the way, you know, a lawyer would read a contract looking for the loophole. Um, and, and you know, you shouldn't have to do that to get through your day. Uh, so it is possible to deceive people that way. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of it depends on things like, well, are there actually drinks on the market that have gluten? Because if there are, then maybe this is more useful information. Um, uh, you know, if not, then uh, the the argument against doing anything about it is, you know, it's truthful. And if nothing else on the market has gluten, then they can all say it, too. And then there won't really be any point in doing it. Yeah, but Superlatives are allowed in marketing, correct? Because it's subjective, right? You can say best pizza in Columbus, even if you aren't the best pizza in Columbus, because maybe in somebody's opinion, you are. 
So the the one limit on that is, uh, so it's called puffery, um, what uh, one court called uh, the privilege to lie your head off as long as no one would believe you. And so the limiting <laughs> the limiting principle is if you say best and sort of give it content, like best in taste tests or, you know, best uh, because it's organic, that part has to be true. Hmm. So, right. So, Not a like, huge limit, but it is a limit. Yeah. So when people say, like, voted best pizza in Columbus by the dispatch, that's that's got to be true. You got to you had to win that, like, consumer, like, vote. Yeah. Although, again, you know, uh, forts sometimes don't want to deal with these cases. So there have been some cases where they said, well, if you just say number one and don't explain what it meant, uh, then that's still just puffery. So it's very... Uh, situation specific. And sometimes it's also based on what the court's intuitions about fairness are. So as someone who teaches law, uh, how do you think about it when you go down the grocery store aisles and you see all these different little logos and all these different little like all natural, gluten free, made with such and such? Like, So I guess I would say uh, I generally trust like specific representations. I trust that it is gluten free. Um, although when it comes to the supplement aisle, you very much should not. It, there's very the, the supplements are that's like far a wild west. Regulated. Yeah, very much a wild west. And you should be extremely careful uh, uh, because the, the supplement may not even have what they say in it, um, which is really uh, uh, you know quite uh, it's quite a scandal. Um, and you know if we had a functioning Congress, it would be something for Congress uh, to to revisit because they kind of exempted supplements from lots of regulation uh, twenty years back, and this experiment has not worked. Um, so anyway, uh, but what what I would say is, uh, uh, you know, I tend to believe representations about ingredients. I, uh, you should uh, natural doesn't really mean anything. Um, and uh, the other thing that I always try and keep in mind is uh, when doctors and pharmacists go to the grocery store, they buy the store brand like headache pills because they know the ingredients are all the same. When bakers go to, to the grocery store, they buy like the generic flour and butter because they know it's all the same. So uh, one thing that you can keep in mind is if you don't have a particular preference for like the taste of a particular soda or the precise smell of, of a product, it's probably the case that the store brand is actually at least as good. Uh, and, uh, you know, be, be like the doctors uh, is what I try and keep in mind. <laughs> That's definitely good advice. And probably, you know, one of the arguments that Panera has been making is that all of the nutrition information, including the caffeine information on the charged lemonade, is available on their menus. Like, Anybody who wanted to flick their phone open and look it up could have seen how much caffeine was in it. And that's something, if you're not quite familiar with the product, maybe flip it over, look at that label. Yeah, and I think the, the key issue is, uh, you know, do you have a reason to do that, right? Because if you don't know that you need to be looking, right, and this is why, uh, you know, if you have the special the uh, genetic variation that makes you very sensitive to what pku uh which is a particular chemical used in like diet coke you actually should look at labels because you know that but if you don't know that you sh that you should be checking like who would expect all right uh you know a bunch of lead to be in in the, the lemonade now of course caffeine is not lead 
right? But the question is, where are we going to draw the line and where would a reasonable consumer draw the line? Yeah. In one of the cases, it was uh, a partner. I believe it was like her husband or her boyfriend um, was diabetic and went and actually looked at the nutrition label because he was diabetic and he wanted to see how much sugar was in it, kind of determine whether he could drink one of these and was like, oh, my gosh, there is a ton of caffeine in this. There's also in the like the full sugar ones, they have like diet versions, but in the full sugar one, I think there was over 60 grams of sugar in it. So very, very sugary, very, very caffeinated. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is about uh, uh, um, just sort of expectations and advertisers, you know, try and manipulate your expectations. So some things, you know, like, you know, that uh, unless it's advertises zero calorie, it's going to have some number of calories. So if you care, you should look. But some things you don't necessarily expect and aren't required to look, you know, at the fine print for. And that's often just a matter of fact. Yeah, one of the things I was always really surprised by is that sometimes like yogurt parfaits will have way more sugar than ice cream. And you wouldn't think so because it's kind of like yogurt. It's supposed to be healthy and you get really like thrown off guard by the sugar content in some things, or at least I have been personally. Yes, yes, right. And, and, and you know, it, it's striking that the the more something is a new product, but it's sort of sliding in uh, sort of next to things you're familiar with. That's where I think there are some real dangers because you might be carrying over your assumptions about regular yogurt, right? Uh, and in fact, that's not that's not how it works. And similarly, I think that's the concern here. That was Rebecca Tushnet, a professor of First Amendment law at Harvard Law School. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thanks for having me. And now that we have sufficient sufficiently ruined your lunch plans, um, that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News. <laughs>